Hey, welcome to Young and Sanctified. I'm Justin, and my goal is to provide open access to expert insights, trying to bridge the gap between the church and the academy so that we can better understand the world around us. So whether you're a committed believer or curious seeker, this podcast is for you. I'm glad you're here. Today's episode, I have Dr. Jessica Joustra. She's an assistant professor of religion and theology at Redeemer University. Dr. Joustra holds a PhD in Christian ethics from Fuller Theological Seminary and the Free University. Today, we talk about her research on the imitation of Christ and the works of Herman Bovink and John Howard Yoder. I think you'll find a lot of good insight from her and her perspective and her expertise on this topic. Thanks for tuning in. And hey, if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, leave a review, reach out to me, give me your feedback. It helps me grow as a podcaster, helps me grow as a ministry to get people this type of information. Thank you so much. And Dr. Joustra, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I was introduced to your work uh, through, he called you a colleague, uh, Dr. Matthew Kamink uh, at Fuller yeah, Seminary. Yeah, he, he uh, said he pulled a lot of his understanding of um, Her- Her- Herman Bovink. Is that how you say it? That's right. Yep, Bovink. A lot of his understanding from you and your work and your uh, dissertation. So I thought, hey, you know what? If I respect him, so I need to see who this person is. So I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I did. Your, your work is phenomenal. So I'm just really grateful uh, to talk to you today. So for people who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you just, you know, who are you? Where are you? And what are you doing? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm I'm delighted to hear of the connection between uh, me and Dr. Kamink. We are uh, colleagues, friends, and I, I greatly respire, uh, respect and, and mm-hmm. admire his work as well. I teach uh, at a little Christian university, Redeemer University in uh, Ancaster, Ontario, which is right outside Toronto. Uh, and there I teach our systematic theology and our ethics. Uh, and I also run a center called our Albert M. Walter Center for Christian Scholarship. Uh, so I my day-to-day work is uh, researching mostly on Herman Bovink, who we'll talk about today, teaching uh, undergrads, and then thinking about uh, how does how does Christian scholarship matter mm-hmm. in the in the broader community? What what can Christian scholars say to the pressing questions of our day? Mm-hmm. And I, I saw in your bio, I, I work in youth ministry, and I saw you also are in youth minister, like you study it or teach it as well. Yeah, we have a youth ministry program, uh, and I, I admit I don't teach the actual oh, okay. youth ministry stuff. I leave that to my wonderful colleague uh, who's right next door mm. to me, uh, but I, I actually do have a background in youth mm. ministry, um, which is probably doesn't show up on much of my stuff anymore, mm. uh, but once upon a time, I, I actually was a director of children and youth ministry, uh, worked in youth ministry for many years, ran a, a youth program that was kind of a theology camp oh. for uh, high schoolers, which... It was always shocking to me that we got people mm. and they were interested, but they were. Mm. Uh, so I, I do have some background there. And we do still uh, at Redeemer, we have a youth ministry program that I do teach in, mm. though not the kind of on the ground practical stuff these sure, days. Sure. So you wrote your dissertation and and I actually I, I made a mistake. I don't have the title in front of me. Can you say the title of the dissertation? Oh, boy. Uh, I don't know if I can either. I think it's called Following the Way of Jesus with a subtitle about uh, Bavink and Yoder in conversation on the imitation yes, of Christ. Yes. But... Sorry sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I'm curious, what inspired you to write about Herman Bavink and following the way of Christ? And, and sorry, and um, yeah. who's the other gentleman? Yoder? Ha- Howard. Uh, John Howard Yoder, who's an Anabaptist theologian. Yes. Yeah. 
It's a great question. Um, you know, for me, the the beginnings of this was deeply personal about kind of questions I had as as a child, mm. as a teen, as a young adult, and and then as uh, a person writing a dissertation was, you know, what does this Christian what does this Christian life look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, and as we'll maybe get into, one of the big questions in my teenage years uh, and even before that was this WWJD phenomenon. Um, maybe some of your listeners remember those um, those those little bracelets mm-hmm. that people wore all over the place. WWJD. I was one of those people. I wore those bracelets, um, but I didn't. You know, as I began to kind of reflect on that question as a as a young adult and adult kind of growing in, in faith and maturity, I didn't have a lot of clarity on what that meant. And in some circles, you know, the question almost seems absurd to ask at this point, right? What would Jesus do? How could you possibly answer that mm. question? You know, if if you're on a beach and and you forgot to your sunscreen and the boat left without you, what would Jesus do? Well, maybe he'd walk on water. I can't walk <laughs> on water. And you know, that's that's a that's a wild example, but it does highlight this point that clearly we can't do everything Jesus does. And we shouldn't try, right? We are not the ones making an atoning mm-hmm. sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And we're not the ones doing more than just that. Um and so then, you know, does does this question have have traction? Can we ask it? Mm. And there was something about the question that felt right to me, right? If I'm a Jesus follower, shouldn't I literally follow Jesus? And what does that mean? But I didn't find that my own ecclesial community um, had a lot of answers for that. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons for this dialogue um, between Herman Bovink, who's this Dutch Reformed Neo-Calvinist theologian, um, and and John Howard Yoder, who's uh, an Anabaptist theologian that is a bit more contemporary than him. Uh, you know, the, the Anabaptist tradition on this point has has a, a, a just richness of, of resources mm. on this question. Um, and one of the things that I, I found as I kind of looked around my own ecclesial tradition, which is which is a reformed tradition, um, was that not a lot of people were talking about mm. it. Uh, but as I continued to dig in, I found out that, you know, some people are uh, and maybe we've overlooked some of those insights. So so the question was kind of twofold. Where can I go in my own tradition as a reformed Christian? Uh, and then how can I learn from other Christian traditions who have who have thought long and hard about this question of imitating Jesus? Because something about mm. it felt right. But there were kind of all of these cross pressures almost telling me the question mm. was wrong. Uh, and I want to say it, it still is the right question, but we have to we have to have a kind of theological scaffolding and a hermeneutical mm-hmm. key to, to sure. think through it. That's fascinating. Yeah, my, my tradition, I don't know if you can see it, I, the Salvation Army. It, yeah. That, I, what I really appreciate about your work and, and um, specifically uh, Herman Bovink is, you know, we I come from the holiness tradition, but we like I think we fail to understand, like, how do we imitate Christ? Because we just think, oh, the Holy Spirit it helps us, you know, do it. But we don't ever really focus on what are we supposed to be doing? So that's Same. really helpful. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate um, this dialogue. So. Is there a rich tradition before Herman Bovink of this, you know, imitating Christ theology? Absolutely. Do you mean yeah. in general or in the Reformed tradition in uh, particular? Both. In general, absolutely. I mean, the church church history is just full of these wonderful and robust examples all the way back from the beginning, uh, thinking about, you know, Stephen's mm. martyrdom and what that looked like in the early Christian tradition of, of um of, of, of thinking through what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of deep and terrible mm. persecution? And what, what are these martyrs kind of, kind of doing? 
And there was a strong appeal to imitation. And there was a strong appeal to imitation in monastic communities. There was a strong appeal to imitation in mm. mystical communities. There was a strong appeal all throughout really Christian history. And and in some ways, the the language of imitation really exploded through through Thomas Akempis in his Imitatio Christi, The Imitation of Christ, which was this widely influential book. But the but the trail of imitation has has come mm. from the very beginning, right? I mean, you look mm. in, in scripture and Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And believers have taken that seriously from day one. Uh, but different traditions and different moments in history have accented different ways that we imitate Christ, right? Uh, because one of the things that we might wish that we could have is just this straight mm -hmm. up imitation to say, it's very simple. Here's Jesus, be like him. But then the question is, mm. how do we be like him? Right. And the church has answered that question differently in different times. Some of us have have said, you know, how do we be like how do we be like Christ? Look at what he did mm. in this in this in this sacrificial death, following his convictions to the cross. We also can follow our Christian convictions up until death. Mm. Or other Christians have said, what do we, what does it look like to be like Jesus? Jesus lived this humble life of poverty and chastity and obedience to the Father's will in in extreme conditions and we can do that too or you know what is the christian tradition what is what does imitating christ look like jesus was in deep mystical spiritual mm. union with the father we can do that too or in a kind of modern example what is and and i mean that in a kind of theologically modern example uh, what does it look like to be like jesus jesus was this great human preaching this wonderful mm. ethic about the kingdom of god be like him mm. And all of those give us a different picture of what it means to mm. imitate Christ. Um, so the question is maybe not if we should, but how we should, right? So if we're going to say nearly all of us are going to in some way, shape or form, whether mm. we know it or not, say, this is this is my Jesus. I want to be like him. Then the question mm. is how? And the reform tradition, you know, is not doesn't usually talk about these things. I don't know if you hang out in reform circles, but you're not going to hear a lot of imitating Christ talk because when when kind of Calvinist traditions, um, you know, my my circles are are, are Dutch reform traditions. Um, when when they talk about ethics, very very rapidly, we go to the mm. law, and I'm and I don't want to mm -hmm. say that's a bad thing, <laughs> uh, and and the the dissertation mm -hmm. doesn't at all say that's a bad thing, and this goes back to Calvin and of course beyond. Um, but if you if you say how do I know what God's will is for my life, a reform person will pretty intuitively and immediately answer. You look to the law. God has given us his will in the Ten Commandments. And I want to say to that, yes and amen, right? When when God freed his people from their slavery in Egypt, they were looking around and saying, what, what do we do now? How do we organize ourselves? And God said, I am the one who has freed you. Now here is how you live. What a beautiful ethic that is to say this is not the way into the kingdom, but this is these are the rules of, of a liberated and free life in service of the one mm. who has saved you. That's not just true for Israel, right? That's true for us too. Mm. But the reality is, you know, that focuses a lot then on these 10 laws, which say a lot about our life. I mean, you can look all throughout the kind of riches of, of the of the reform tradition, and in particular, the the kind of Dutch neo-Calvinist tradition, look at people like Louis Smedes, who was this American ethicist mm. who was at Fuller. Uh, Fuller actually still has a Smedes chair to this day. And he wrote this wonderful book on mere morality that says, what we need to do, how we need to follow God is written down in these mm. words for us. Uh, and that goes back to Calvin, right? Calvin really emphasized the laws. He has these beautiful sermons 
on all of the Ten Commandments that say this is how we live. But one of the things that we don't see as much in Calvin um, emphasized is the fact that he also talked about imitating Christ. And he talked about it in relationship to the law. So he wanted to say very clearly, the law is how we order our life. God has given us these instructions that lay out his will. And the law is not just, he has these three uses of the law. The law is a mirror to point on our sin. The law is a curb to tell us when to stop and to kind of curb our sinful influences. But he also wants to say the law has a principal use or a first use or a primary use. It's actually, I shouldn't have said first use because in the Reformed tradition, we talk about it as the third use of the law. But the primary or principal use is that it's a guide for grateful living. It shows us how Mm. to live in light of the fact that God has Mm. freed us. Mm. And so for him, the law has this central, beautiful part of the Christian life to say, we, if those of us who are grateful to God for our salvation, which is to say all of us who have been saved, what do we do? How do we, how do we show that gratitude? The law is actually a guide for grateful living, which is why in places like the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, there are these nice little, uh, nice little summaries of it, sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, and gratitude. And the law, the Ten Commandments, is not in the sin part to say this is why you need a Savior, though it will tell us why we need a Savior. The law is in the gratitude or the service part to say now that Christ has saved you, what do you do? And that's that's a wonderful legacy that we, we receive very, very robustly from Calvin. But Calvin also says then the law is deeply tied to our understanding of the imitation of Christ. He says, when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, it is essential that we follow his example. Uh, And he says this time and time again, uh, especially in his little golden book for the Mm. Christian life, which is this wonderful excerpt from his institutes. But he then has this really nice uh, kind of clarifying way of talking about it. And it's very sharp and I think um, something that sticks in your mind. He says, we're to be imitators, Mm. not apes. (laughs) That's That's in his commentary on John. And what he means by that is, we're not going to to say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? The sum total of that is not to find a road that Jesus walked on. Think about the shoes that Jesus wore. Put those shoes on. Think about the kind of clothing that Jesus would wear. And then say, I'm going to be like Jesus. So I'm going to walk the very road he walked in the very shoes and the very dress and all of these things that would say, I'm just mm. going to mimic Jesus. And he says, mimicry is not mm. the end all be all. <laughs> and in fact, it's just not really attainable for from many or most or all of us, but we're going to be imitators instead. We're going to imitate Christ, not mimic him. We're going to be an imitator, not an ape. And he also wants to say, there are actions hmm. only Christ can do. Uh, you know, Christ is the atoning sacrifice. We are not. Um, but then he he says, you know, the law and the imitation of Christ, these two things come together. The law shows us God's will. And then he says this, it's, 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 it's a part of his um, golden booklet of the true Christian life, which is, again, these, this excerpt from, from the Institutes. Only if we walk in the beauty of God's law do we become sure of our adoption as children of the Father, because God has reconciled himself to us. Therefore, he commands us to be conformed to Christ as our pattern. So for him, this is actually plays an important role in the life of the believer. But if you look at the reception of Calvin, mm-hmm. we don't hear that quite as mm-hmm. much as I think we should, um, because we hear the law part, which I want to say yes and amen to. But in his understanding of the law, Calvin deeply weaves in this this very robust concept of an imitating, not a mimicking, but an imitating of Christ. 
And it's on yeah. that that Bobbink builds. Uh, in his reformed ethics, he uh, explicitly explicitly um, hmm. refers to Kelvin and Kelvin's understanding of imitation. So he's he's very mm. very self consciously mm. building on this. So you lay out this foundation. It's beautiful that I Kelvin talking about that. That's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to quote that: "Be imitators, not apes." That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Isn't that great? Yeah. It just sticks with you. Yeah, that's bold. <laughs> I mean, it's Kelvin, but that's bold. <laughs> So why, why why then do like I mean modern you you said it not me I can't say it I'm not I'm not deep in reform circles so I'll just go <laughs> off you you just you just said that they they quote you know they draw from the law more than this imitation Isn't theology it? but there's this rich history of imitation theology as you just said so why are they why are reform circles still not drawing on um, imitation theology. Yeah, I mean, Calvin himself hmm. warned of dangers in imitation, uh, and especially, and Bavink does this as well, as he looked back into church history, he actually wants to say, there have been more wrong uses than right uses of this imitation question. And some of them have led to, you know, ethics that only some parts of Christians can attain to, right? If we if we think of imitation as a kind of poverty uh, chastity, obedience that also that mm. also requires something like singleness. So chastity is not just chastity, but chastity in in singleness mm. because Christ was was not married. So if we're going to imitate Christ, we we will we will be not married. Says some aspects of 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 Christian tradition. And Calvin wants to say, and so does Bobink. That actually gives us this kind of dual level of Christian morality, where some of mm. us can really imitate Christ, and some of us can kind of imitate Christ. And he wants to say that that that's a problem, or you know, if we look at martyrdom, martyrdom can be this like phenomenal expression of faith, but it can also lead us to pursue this ideal of suffering rather than pursue the ideal of faith in any situation mm. and at any cost that may lead to suffering. But an emphasis on martyrdom may, and, and they say has, led some Christian, some aspects of the Christian tradition to focus mm. so much on the suffering, yeah. not on the cause for suffering. Um, and so they want to say, you know, there's been all of these ways. Those are just two examples that things have gone poorly <laughs> uh, and and that we haven't understood imitation correctly. And then later on, as the kind of Christian tradition, and especially in the Reformed tradition, thinks about these things, there, there are some really explicit rejections based mm -hmm. on both those questions of, you know, when we think about imitation, where has this actually gone wrong in Christian history? Where have we overemphasized imitation to the point of imitating maybe everything in Christ so that we don't see Christ as unique in, in the modern world? They want to say, you know, that if that especially is one of those things that we have such an emphasis on what humanity can and should accomplish, that that actually mm. leads us to a real state of confusion in imitation because we lose the sense that Christ is first savior and then example. Uh, and so they want to say that gets mm. us into this whole host of, 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 of problems. Uh, and and then someone like, you know, a, a later Dutch neo-Calvinist theologian um, who was a professor at the the Free University of Amsterdam, Amsterdam, not that long ago. He's he's since passed on, but he wants to say, you know, Jesus as an example really gets us mm. into more trouble than it does help. Um, so sometimes, you know, the Reformed tradition has kind of passively not accepted uh, an imitation ideal, right? Someone like Herman Boving's colleague. Uh, William Hasink, who also taught at the Free University of Amsterdam, you know, just mm -hmm. doesn't appeal to this. So a kind of passive rejection of imitation. He talks about the imitation of Christ as he kind of thinks through the history of Christian ethics, 
but he doesn't actually say, and we should not imitate Christ. So he kind of passively looks over it. But his his successors, some of them really actively say, we should not try to make Jesus' life significant to ours hmm. by applying it in a moral sense. Because how do we know what Jesus would do? And there they're kind of rehashing right. that problem I laid out in the very beginning, right? Jesus' Jesus' situation was really far away from ours in many senses, um, given his historical context and our own context. There is just decades and centuries of history and technological developments and cultural differences. So how in the world can Christ be this general model if we want to take him very seriously as a particular person in a particular time? And, and so they want to say, you know, if we're going to take him seriously as this particular person in this particular mm-hmm. time, how could he be a model for us? So so Carter says at one point, Jesus doesn't know from experience what being a father is. So how do we imitate him in our fatherhood? Jesus knows about a kind of agricultural culture in in a particular moment. So how does he know about this? Like, how do, how do we know what he would do in the 21st century in North America or in the 20th century in, in the Netherlands? He wants to say we we can find these big general themes in Jesus's life, but can we actually concretize them to our particular moment? And there he wants to say, I don't think we can. Bob Inc., of course, has a different answer. Uh, but those are some of the reasons, right? These, you know, both guards against how it has gone wrong and some kind of theological claims about can we actually say this if we're going to talk about Jesus as this particular person who was incarnate in history at a particular time, in a particular place. Those, yeah, I mean, those theological concerns are valid. That's that's an interesting critique, theology. So I'm... I'm really curious to hear more now, and I'm sure the listeners are too. <laughs> Can you go into Herman Bovink and um, John Howard Yoder's theology then? And, and maybe even some distinctions too of, of um, differences between them. Yeah, so the two of them are very different. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll start by saying that. Um, and, you know, they, they are very different, though. I kind of want to couch that in thinking through how the Reformed and Anabaptist traditions relate together. And I won't go into that in depth, though, if you'd like to, we can. Uh, but there are a lot of, I think, wonderful studies being done on and that have been done in the last 50 years or so on how should we mm. think about this relationship between the Reformed tradition and the Anabaptist tradition? Because um, mm. be- historically, you know, creeds, <laughs> uh, confessions, and and all of these things, especially particular Reformed confessions, have really pitted the two against each other. Right. Something like the Belgic Confession, when it talks about government, would mm-hmm. say explicitly, do not be like those Anabaptists. Um, so this reformed conf- this reformed confession mm-hmm. saying we are the opposite of that. But there's been some really good work, especially done by actually Yoder himself with mm-hmm. uh, with a reformed theologian, Richard Mao, um, to say, how can we kind of reposition our understanding of these two relationships? And they they posit that the two actually have a lot more in common than we might think. Going back to the roots of the Anabaptist mm-hmm. tradition, saying, where did this come from? Uh, and then saying, now, how can we still say that there's there's more in common than we might think? So I'll leave that there right now. But I think that's important to say, 
There's more in common than we might think. But when it comes to the imitation of Christ on face value, the two are very different. Yoder says, we follow Jesus at one point and one point only, full stop, in his cross. Bobbing does not say that. He says, how do we know how to follow Jesus? Like a good reform person, he says, we look to the law. And we need law-patterned imitation of the virtues of Christ. Those sound very different. Um, and Bavink in particular, and, and he's who I'll spend more time on uh, for now because he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of the heart of some of my, my own research. But Bavink has this, this wonderful sense that Christ is the living mm-hmm. law. So he says, at one point, the law was just written, <laughs> written on our hearts. It was, it, was, it was accessible to all of us, right, before the fall. And then the fall happened, and, and we didn't know what was right for us, right? We didn't know what was good for us. So God wrote them down, and he wrote them on stone tablets. And yet we still couldn't follow what was right. And so Jeremiah then says, I will bring, make a new covenant where this will be written on your hearts, and how does it get written on our hearts? By being united to the one who is, as Bobbing says, the living law. And so when he says, who is Jesus? Of course, he begins by saying, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Jesus is the one who has saved us. And he goes into all of these wonderful understandings of justification and sanctification and soteriology and all of that stuff. And I'm just assuming that as a given now, mm-hmm. not avoiding it, but assuming it as a given that this is who Jesus is, the incarnate son of God, fully God, fully man, who is our savior. And mm. then he says, but also he is the living law. And as mm. the living law, he is our example. And so so he says, what does it look like then to imitate him? And Bobbing talks about this at three different points in his career. So it's clearly this fascinating thing for him. And it's something he's fascinated by throughout his whole career. He talks about it at the early stages of his career, at the very end, and kind of early to middle-ish as he mm. writes Reformed Ethics. And all of them, he says basically the same thing. We need to imitate Christ. Christ is our example. Um, and he says actually very strongly in his Reformed Ethics uh, imitation is the heart of the Christian life. <laughs> so what does it look like? Um, and and one of these benefits of our salvation, he says in the dogmatics, is this moral benefit, which means mm. that Christ is and ought to be and can be our example. But then what does that mean, right? And that's the question for everyone mm. that says this, which should be in right. some way, shape, or form, I think all Christians. The question is, what does it mean? What does it mean to imitate Christ? And he says then, we don't imitate Christ in this kind of mimicking way, but we do imitate Christ as as we imi- as we follow him as he follows the law. So we look to his life as an example of what faithful law abiding looks like because Christ is our living law. And then in 1918, he goes even farther to say, you know, I'm going to let's flesh this out even more. And we imitate Christ's mm. virtues as he applies the law. So what is Christ? He says Christ is this concrete example of what law obedience looks like. And so again, then he's emphasizing Christ is a human who has come to earth at a particular moment in a particular time. And we're not in that time right now. And Christians in the fifth century weren't in that time right now. And Christians, you know, 100 years from now are not in that time. But we all are following Christ. So what does that mean? He says we follow Christ as he imitates the law, and we follow the virtues of Christ in that imitation. 
And so he says, you know, when Jesus is is talking and, and giving us these examples of how we ought to live and instructing his disciples, we need to see that both as normative, full stop, and as particular, in a particular place, words given to a particular society. And so when he's talking to his disciples, you know, in something like the Sermon on the Mount, how should we live? He's giving them, says Bob Inc., he's and he's exalting the virtues that his disciples would require in those circumstances, mm. in circumstances where it's difficult to to be this new Christ follower, where they didn't live at the upper echelons mm. of society, but they were these kind of lowly folks. What does this look like? Um, and so he says, you know, Christ says, what does it look like to be my disciple? It looks like prayer and modesty and holiness and purity and love and long suffering and generosity and hospitality and compassion. And, mm. and Bobbing says, wonderful. Those are virtues that will be applied, though, in perhaps different ways in different in, in all times and places. So he says, you know, Christ is our example in that he gives us a pattern for how to follow the law. And he gives mm. us these examples of virtues as he follows the law. And then he says the context that we live in may change our application of those virtues, but it doesn't change the law and the virtues themselves. So he gives us then this kind of nimbleness of being able to say, yes, what Christ has given to us mm-hmm. in his example is normative for all times and all places, but it's also particular. And we need to look to our particular our particular circumstances as well to figure out how to apply those universal norms. Mm. So is it that he... Was there a distinction between like the individual following or imitating Christ and like the church body imitating Christ? Yeah, that's a good question. So when he's talking, he's mostly thinking through um, he's he's talking to individuals. Um, And but he also talks about this, these questions of imitation in, you know, essays on the Christian's posture in society. Uh, and so what he wants to say then is, you know, following Jesus is deeply personal, but never, never totally private or never totally individual, right? This calls us together as a body. It calls us together as people. And and Bobbing makes this wonderful distinction that's this classical, this kind of classic neo-Calvinist distinction between the church's institute and the church's organism. And the church's institute is, of course, this institutional church gathered around word and sacrament, things like a local church or a denomination or those kinds of things. This church that has these rules, it has pastors, it has synods, it has, you know, presbyteries, it has all of these things. But he wants to say that's not the sum total of the church. We as Christians, as the church, are also called out into society. He uses the language of the church as organism then. We're called into every place in life. And in all of these things, he says Christ is our norm. So when he says, you know, we are going out into the world, so this this essay on Christians in society, he wants to say, how do we go out in the world? We go out in the world as imitators of Christ. How do we come together as imitators of Christ in all of these things? Because the imitation of Christ for him is the heart of the Christian life. Jesus' example is, is it, it reigns and it tells us mm. how we ought to live. So how do you think, well, let me back up. Can you go into more on um, Yoder's imitation then? Yeah, absolutely. So Yoder says, again, very clearly, the only way we imitate Christ is in the cross. Um, and he means something very specific by that. So he he wants to say Jesus is normative. But again, like Bobbing, he wants to say a lot of the historical ways that we have thought about the imitation of Christ actually don't get it. 
And that's one of the reasons I think these two are such interesting interlocutors together, because, I mean, they were writing in different traditions, right? Reformed, Anabaptist, they were writing in different times, uh, 20th century, 21st century. They were, or, yeah, or maybe early 20th century, later 20th century. Um, but they were they were writing in different contexts, uh, Europe, North America. But in that, they both look at the same kind of historical patterns of imitation, mm-hmm. which is not surprising, right? These are the, hmm. the historical patterns of imitation. But they have the same critiques, almost verbatim at some points, the same critiques of all of these movements, which is fascinating. And so both of them want to say they don't, we don't quite get this full picture throughout church history. And we need some sort of hermeneutical key to say this is how we do it. And Yoder's key is different. He says, how do we follow Jesus? We follow him in mm-hmm. his cross. And then he says, what is his cross? Right? And that gives us these kind of radical imitations for Yoder in terms of how we imitate. Because he says, what is Jesus? Mm. What do we see in the cross? We see Jesus, the suffering servant. And the way of the cross, he says, is this way of nonviolence, this central motif, not only in Yoder, but in, in, in Anabaptist thought, this power through weakness, this servanthood, suffering, enemy love, wisdom, where the world sees foolishness, loving your enemy for the sake of, uh, for the sake mm. of the cross, loving losing one's life for the sake of saving it victory over the powers which is this really important um this really important concept Mm -hmm. for yoder and so the cross he says is all of that so imitating christ is taking part in christ's radically new way of living this non-violent suffering servant uh radical kind of subversive way of engaging in Mm -hmm. in life today that refuses to give in to the powers and principalities he says that is the way we follow. So it might seem simple, right? Like, what do you do to follow Jesus? Follow, follow him to the cross. Take up your cross. But Yoder means something very specific by that. And in that is this nonviolence, this power through weakness, servanthood, and this deeply other way mm. of living mm. for him. So now I'm let me move forward. I, I'm wondering how does this... Um, like ethic, this theology play out in society. You mentioned society earlier yes. uh, with with the organism, yes. but what does that actually look like? Did have they like written on that, like politics, basically? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Yoda writes very specifically on that, right? In his in his politics of Jesus, he says Jesus is political, <laughs> right? And we can't not see him as political. It's in the very title. <laughs> um, and and he wants to say, you know, if you look in the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Luke, in this in this book he looks at quite quite significantly, he says you can't avoid the fact that Jesus' life and mm. teachings and death and resurrection is extremely political and extremely counter mm. to the political ways of his time and ours. And so he he says, you know, if we look to the cross, which is mm. where for Yoder we have to look, the cross is a political punishment. And Jesus' decision to go to the cross has political implications. And so he says we can't avoid that when we we follow, when we imitate the suffering servant, this is going to take us to expressly political places. And what does Jesus do? He gives us this new political option. Hmm. He gives us this new way of being in the world, this new kingdom that we're aligned to, which is, of course, a political language. Uh, and this this new way of of embodying a kingdom and a kingship that has again this nonviolence, this enemy love, 
And all of this, he says, has to be political because it comes into it comes in it, it affronts and it conflicts with the very political ways of both Jesus day and ours. And so he says, if we're following Jesus in his cross, mm. we're following a man who who was who was put to death by the state. Uh, and, and what does that mean? And and so for him, imitation has to be public, and and Bobbing is less explicit and overt about this, right? He doesn't have a book called The Politics of Jesus, um, but he does want to say with Yoder, and this is one of the ways, and it might seem, you know, well, mm-hmm. of course this is this is true, but I don't know that it is just such a well, duh. This is this is what it is. But both Bobbing and Yoder want to say that the imitation of Christ is a whole life ethic. It doesn't just have to say something about, you know, one aspect of my life or another aspect of my life. It has a claim on every part of how I do everything. It's not just about my personal piety and my devotional life. It's not just about my church life. It's not just about, you know, an explicit cause of suffering. It has to at least claim on every aspect of my life. And it it gives me a robust example for every aspect of my life. Hmm. And it's one of those things I think we can take for granted, but we shouldn't. Um, because when we think about Jesus' example, sometimes it's way too easy to say, mm. you know, Jesus is for this part of my life, or Jesus as an example is for this part of my life. We fall into that so easily these days, right? The kind of, I'm going to be, my faith matters for for my devotions. And if I was a pastor or a missionary, mm. it really matters. Um, but does my faith matter as I'm gardening? Does my faith matter as I'm playing basketball? Does my faith matter as I'm doing my taxes? Does my faith matter as I'm in the grocery store? Does my faith matter, you know, all of these things as I'm a teacher in in a public school, right? Does it just matter if I'm in a Christian school or does it matter if I'm in a public school too? And all both of these ethics want to say, yes, it matters to all of it. It changes the way we do all of it. And so if that's true, and Bavink and Yoder would say it is, then it absolutely has to propel us into into all aspects of our life. And I think for Bobbing, it absolutely does propel us not only into kind of this this robust formation in our in our personal life, but it propels us into the public square and it gives us mm. this way of being in the public square in in any part of society that says this is an imitation to Christ. And I can I can look uh to Christ as an example for for how I do anything and everything. For for listeners who may not have you know academic training or didn't go to seminary or even bible college or something like that what advice can you give them what encouragement can you give them to like imitate Uh, christ better yeah that's a great question um you know the first the first thing that bob inc lands with and and i will say i mean the the project and i think this is a really important project is one that says we need each other uh, a christian tradition should not stand on its own in isolation because we're missing out on on a great value that the the full Christian body can bring us both in terms of you know talking with and learning from other Christian traditions in our own time and also thinking back historically how Christians have thought about these things. And this project really does try to say the reformed tradition needs other yeah. traditions to speak to it so that we can we can learn and more fully understand what it is that God is telling us, right? We need the body of believers to do that. Um, but I do think Bob Inc. has some really, really wonderful insights here uh, for the imitation of Christ, and I'm going to focus on on those. Um, and one of the things that Bob Inc. 
first and foremost says is the imitation of Christ has a number of kind of aspects. And the first one is union with Christ, right? We've been talking about the implications of of imitating Christ, that it sends us out, that it lays claim on our whole life. Absolutely. But for Bavink, he does not take it for granted that we need to start with what is imitating Christ. It's being united to him. Um, and often, I think, as we think about ethics, we get really focused on the, how do we do this? What now? What does it say for me? And one of the things that Bavink's imitation of Christ brings us to is, <laughs> it's not about me, right? The Christian faith should bring us to that. But the imitation of Christ certainly does to say, I can't imitate someone who I am not united to, right? How can I imitate a pattern if it's external to me? What, what, does, that, what does that mean? Uh, especially if it's this perfect pattern, how can I, a fallible human, do that? Uh, and Bobbing says, you know, often when we think about the imitation of Christ, it turns out just to be this hmm. terribly onerous, difficult thing because... Christ is Jesus and and I am right, not, right. Uh, and neither is any one of us, right? Um, and Bobbing makes a lot, takes a lot of effort to say, we do not first look to Christ as example. Mm-hmm. We look to him first as Savior, and only then, when through his spirit we are united with him, mm-hmm. can we dare look to him as example. Uh, And that's really important, that ordering and that priority to say we can get really focused on the results. What does this mean? What should I do? Those are good questions, but they're not the first question. The first question is, who is Jesus Mm. to me? Who is the Savior? And how can I grow in that relationship with the one who is the living law? How do I continue to, you know, work out my salvation and and think through, um, you know, this this deep relationship to him. And Bobbing says that good news, that union is where we start. And then he says, you know, then we do have to think about what now? What does, how does Jesus orient me in the world? How do I imitate him in the world? And and what I what I love about Bobbing's way of doing this is that there's no one size fits all. I mean, that makes it both really complicated and really wonderful, right? Because if I want to say, you know, the the hermeneutical key and and this is in no way you know disparaging deep just profoundly beautiful witnesses of, of brothers and sisters in the mm-hmm. faith who who have been persecuted for their faith to the point of death um, but if that's the only way to imitate christ is in death then that that kind of brackets mm-hmm. off a lot of the christian life to say this is this is not where we're thinking about imitation or again not disparaging the wonderful witness of Christian brothers and sisters who have, in a very particular way, dedicated themselves to the cause of the kingdom through monastic orders, et cetera. But if that's the only way, what does it mean for Christians who have not? Um, and and what Bobbing does is give us this deep contextual lens to say, mm. it's not just a one-size-fits-all pattern that this thing is imitation or this thing is imitation, though he's also very clear to say, these things are imitation. Um, but they're not the only ways of imitating. So what he really forces us to do, Mm. and I think this is a critical step as we think about what does imitating Christ look like today, is have this very clear-eyed contextual Mm. analysis. What's going on in my time? What are my circumstances? What is this place that I am called to imitate Christ in? Because Bavink makes it very clear, we both need to, and this is in this wonderful 1918 essay, 
uh, The Imitation of Christ in the Modern World. Um, he says, mm. we, we both need to understand Christ's context and our own context to say, how do I apply these normative mm. patterns, this normative law, these normative virtues in my time? So we need to say, what is my time? What is the place that I'm living in? What are the challenges and the opportunities? And how do we, how do we, how do we make sense of our own time? And Bavink forces us to ask mm-hmm. that question if we're going to think through imitation, because he says, here are the virtues in Christ's life. Here is the law. He is this living law. And those things don't change. Mm-hmm. But our application of those things depends in part on our context. And so he asks us to do this contextual analysis that I think is both really difficult and really important, uh, and then says, go apply these virtues. Go apply this law. That's beautiful. Mm, Amen. Amen. Mm. Well, Dr. Joustra, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and and your heart. I I just, I loved... uh, I could see. I don't know if you. I don't have. I don't know if you have notes or anything. But I could definitely tell when you were just speaking from the heart and from this this joy that this topic gives you. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.